The harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. Why did he use that word? God goes to extreme measures to bring the loss to himself. The greatest gift you will ever give this world is your intimacy with God. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all three inside of me. I've got the power right now. I think what Jesus really wants is people to go. I want to be the answer to Jesus' prayer request. Welcome to the Fuel for the Harvest podcast. When this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, then shall the end come. everyone and welcome to this latest episode of Fuel for the Harvest. This is Nathan and I'll be your host for today and I have a very special guest joining me, Ford speaker Adrian Dupre. Thanks so much for being here, Adrian. Are you kidding me, Nathan? This is a treat. It's like giving me a piece of candy. I don't know if you're looking at me right now, but I got I I love candy. So when you give me an opportunity to talk about Jesus on a podcast, I don't know what a podcast is because I'm a boomer, but if you give me an opportunity to talk about Jesus on this kind of thing, Man, I'm all in. I can't wait because I know how smart you are, Nathan. You're like off the charts brilliant. It's like me and John the Baptist have something in common. He was unworthy <laughs> to untie Jesus' sandals. I'm unworthy oh, to untie yours. But I'm just saying I'm honored because I got a feeling you're going to bring stuff out of me that I have not thought about in a long time because you asked some good questions. <laughs> this is going to be a fun podcast. So let's get after it. I'm super excited, man. So for those of you listening, the goal of this podcast is we are in our continuing conversation on deconstruction. And uh, if you haven't listened to our introductory episode on deconstruction, be sure to listen to that one first and then hop over to here. But today's subject is one that's near and dear to my heart because I had my own miniature little moment of faith crisis, if you will, as I approached this subject, because um, I had always just assumed it to be true. And then someone said, is it, are you sure that it's true? And it, it made me question and it made me search. And that question is, was Jesus even a historical person? So uh, the, 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 the conversation could go a bunch of different ways, but Adrian, I'm going to throw it to you. What are your thoughts? Okay. Uh, you don't ever start with the Bible when you're trying to defend something. You always go to the Bible, I think, last. But to defend the historicity of Christ, it's very important to understand the scriptures and what they say and how they fit into time, how they fit into history. Um, the, the scriptures were written over 1,400 or uh, 1,500 years, had 40 plus authors. We're not quite sure who did Hebrews. How you doing? But um, 40 plus authors and, and, and uh, one theme, the entire, the entire Bible, one theme the salvation of mankind, the glory of God through the salvation of mankind. That's the one theme of the scriptures. Um, there have been attacks on the Bible throughout many times. Uh, archaeologists, uh, I've done a lot of studies on this. Uh, I've had a, a dear friend of mine named Bob Cornuke who found several archaeological discoveries. He's like a, a Christian Indiana Jones, and he's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. He found the, uh, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. He found no. He found Paul's anchors at ninety feet down off the island of Malta. He found the Mount Sinai, where the real place is, not in the and the place that's down there in Egypt. It's actually in Arabia because Galatians chapter two says it's in Arabia. So um, I love apologetics and I love archaeology. And mm -hmm. the archaeologists, some of the top guys in the world, read the Bible to figure out where to dig. They have never, and I'm going to repeat this, never ever found anything 
in scripture that was wrong or disproven in archaeology. Let's compare it to a, a, a more modern book, uh, the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon has never, ever, the extreme opposite, ever been proven accurate with anything in archaeological digs at all, ever. So what, that tells me at least the book is reliable. It's a reliable mm -hmm. book. And the way that you uh, test reliability for a book through antiquity, through time, is you test it by the number of translations there are of that book or transcriptions of that book when they transcribe the book how, how many there are the the second greatest book in all of antiquity the second greatest book in all of history is uh, ulysses by odyssey um there are over 660 different copies different translations of that book into different languages and that adds to how powerful that book was at the beginning and when it was written it was a very important book to, to mankind and they had over 600 and 60 different translations of it. The New Testament alone has over 28,000 translations of it mm. worldwide. 20 did I say 28,000? Yes, I didn't I didn't say uh, uh, let me just say it this way. 28,000 translations. So and and I was on a flight one time. Am I allowed to tell a story Nathan? I don't know if I'm allowed to tell a story or not. Yes, please do. Okay, I was on a on a flight one time and I sat next to this guy who was a uh, uh, you know, he had a nice suit on, $2,500 suit. I was fixing my hair, looking in a suit because it had a reflection on it. And <laughs> and he he was a he was a sharp, sharp-minded man. Come to find out, he's one of the most powerful men in all of Columbia, South Carolina, where I live. And one of the big high-rise buildings in Columbia is named after him. So I said, "Hey, I know who you are. The building's named after you. You're you're impressive." He said, "Well, he said, what do you do?" I said, "I'm a preacher." He said, "What do you think about the Da Vinci Code?" Now that makes sense to me. The Da Vinci Code. I looked at him and said, "I really listen. The uh, I think the Da Vinci Code is actually pretty smart. Pretty smart. If you didn't have the Alexandrian text type with the Textus Receptus and the Byzantine text type and whatnot, uh, there's different text types that were that we get uh, the King James version from, or 1100, 1200 AD is when they when they had those in the Textus Receptus. And so I said, yeah, it makes sense to me." that maybe da Vinci was right, that the church that seemed to be a little suspicious at that time may have changed some things in the scripture to try to, you know, to, to make ends meet for their own cause and for their own, you know, their own uh, whatever ideas that they had. But I said, but the Alexandrian text type kind of changed everything. And I just was quiet because I know he has no idea what I'm talking about at all. So he looks at me and says, and he's stroking his chin. He says, okay. All right, what's the Alexandrian text type? I said, that's the right question. That's the question you should be asking. Well, the Alexandrian text type was discovered in, in the mid-1900s when a guy was doing text studies in a southern Saudi, Saudi Arabian monastery. And he saw these monks taking a bunch of parchments and throwing them in a dumpster. That's why a guy named D.A. Carson was King James only to the, to the hill. Not as much as he used to be, but he used to be a lot, very strong king. He didn't like the Alexander text type because he called it garbage. And he's right. It was garbage. They were throwing him in the garbage. <laughs> D.A. Carson says, right. He, so the guy says, what are you going to do with those? Oh, we're going to burn them tonight. In God's providence, this guy was there knowing that those parchments might be very important. So he, he said, can I have them? Yeah, sure. I can. They're worth millions and millions of the Alexander text type from from Alexandria, Egypt, dated all the way back to 1st century AD. Now, watch how important this is. From 1st century AD to 11, 1200 AD, the Textus Receptus, to all the way back to Alexandria text type, that span of a thousand years, 
the Bible, when they put it on a on, on some computer programs to try to figure out how accurate it was, how, how similar it was, it was over 97% the same. Some of the earliest, most reliable manuscripts don't have, I mean, um, John chapter 7, verse 58 to John 8, 11, the woman caught in adultery is not in the Alexandrian text type. Um, uh, John, uh, Matthew chapter 17, verse 21, these things only come out by prayer and fasting. The second half of Mark chapter 16, you know, drinking poison, handling snakes. <laughs> That's not, okay, I don't know what to think about that. How you doing? Welcome to Moses. But I'm just saying that those things are not, in, see, in our Bibles, they have them bracketed. Mm -hmm. which is telling us they're not in the earliest most reliable man. So I looked at him and said, so uh, Da Vinci's way off base. He looked at me and said, wow, you're good. And, and then the guy, now watch this. I, I hate to make this story longer, but I'm going to make it longer. The guy prays on the flight to receive Christ mm -hmm. and was weeping and gave his life to the Lord after I'd explained some, you know, apologetics to him and did some other stuff to him, shared the gospel with him. Uh, several years later, I'm painting in uh, someone's house. And this guy comes home from work and the guy says, wait a minute. I know that voice. Is that Adrian? And I said, I said, uh, yeah. He said, Adrian, I'm the guy you led to Christ on the plane. The lawyer guy. I said, what are you doing? Give him a big hug. I said, I didn't know this is your husband together. His wife had gotten saved. His kids had gotten saved. They were all crying and I was sitting there hugging him and whatnot all over the room. It was just a random meet on a flight. It's not like God doesn't know what's going on. You can't tell him a joke. Hey, Lord, have you heard the one? Yes. He knows everything. So, <laughs> so all that said, the Bible is pretty accurate when it talks about stuff. Nothing. So. It talks about Jesus a lot. Now, there's also extra biblical writings concerning Jesus that are very, very important. Uh, Tacitus, Eusebius, these guys would write, Tertullian would write about what Jesus did extra biblical. Like if I said to you right now, here's a simple illustration. If I said to you, you remember when Michael Jordan played with uh, LeBron James and uh, and uh, and uh, uh, Seth Curry, Steph Curry, or whatever his name is, Curry dude. Um, you remember when all three of them played on the same team and they won every game in the league? You remember that? Nathan, what would you say if I said that? I would say, I don't know anything about sports, but I'm pretty sure they never played on the same they team. They never played on the same <laughs> team. They never played. And anybody knows anything about sports will say, ah, whatever. So when Tacitus and Eusebius and these guys wrote about Jesus, nobody said, oh, you're a lunatic. You're crazy. That never mm -hmm. happened. Nobody ever challenged them. It was just matter of fact kind of stuff. Plus, let me throw this out at you. This was in uh, in uh, uh, Josh McDowell's uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He said there's more written historical evidence that Jesus lived on the earth than there is that Abraham Lincoln lived on the earth. Really? More written historical evidence. Now, there's two ways to prove something's true. One is called uh, scientific method. Mm -hmm. You Scientific method, you... You do an experiment, you have a hypothesis, you do an experiment, and the experiment proves it or disproves it. Uh, here, I'll give you a hypothesis. Soap floats. Well, how do you know soap floats? Come on, man. I like skeptics. I'm a skeptic. So, yeah, you put some soap in the water. Hey, that soap floats. But then you find some other, like, lava soap. That stuff so straight to the bottom. <laughs> so the hypothesis messed up because not all soap floats. So that's called scientific method. You can't prove the historicity of Jesus with scientific method. You can't do it. You can't. You, you can't reproduce anything that he's done. You can't reproduce it anywhere. It was a, phys a physical human person who lived 2,000 years ago. So you can't reproduce a miracle. You can't reproduce these things. There is a second way to prove something's true. The second way is called the legal historical methodology. The legal historical methodology is written by a guy named Simon Greenleaf. Simon 
Greenleaf was the chairman of the Harvard Law School uh, back when Harvard first started as a pastoral training school. He was the chairman of the law school at that time, and he wrote the evidentiary process by which we put people on trial today. There's a famous trial from the O.J. Simpson. There's famous Murdoch trial that's going on today, too. Pretty nasty stuff going on there. But but the, the O.J. Simpson trial was classic because he spread his hand open and 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 tried to get the glove on, but he had his hand spread. He didn't put his hand together when he's putting the glove on like you're supposed to. He left his hand open so they couldn't get the glove on. And if the glove doesn't fit, you must have quit kind of thing. So, so he got let off because the system, the legal historical methodology system worked perfectly. Let me explain it to you. You have a, a um, in the middle of the circle, you have a, a person who's either guilty or innocent. Around the edge of the circle, on the tangent, you have all the evidence, 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 all the way around. Uh, 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 but they focused on the gloves, even though they had all this evidence that proved that he did it, proved it. But they have one spot that the gloves um, to try to, and the gloves and then the guy who collected some of the evidence made a racial comment 14 years before that. So now they cast some shadow, shadow of doubt on that. So he got let off and the system worked perfectly. The civil trial that happened that later, that next month, he was he was committed guilty and had to pay 250 million because of what he did. So the mm -hmm. civil trial doesn't do all the the you know the legal historical methodology thing. So this guy named Lee Strobel um, was a was a secular. Um, Can I uh, interrupt you really quickly? Yeah, man. So the the legal historical method is basically like innocent until pro proven guilty kind of thing. Right. Is that what you're trying right. to say? So because right. there was one little bit of evidence that supported his innocence. Therefore, he must be innocent because he's not a hundred percent guilty. Exactly, exactly, okay. exactly. Okay. So the reason why I said that is because of a guy named Lee Strobel. He was the chief legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. He had a law degree from Yale and a journalism degree from Ch University of Chicago. He brought down one of the greatest crime bosses, uh, hitmen ever in the Chicago mob. Um, very powerful man. His wife gets saved at a church called Willow Creek Community Church with Bill Hybels. His wife gets saved. His Bill Lee Strobel is an atheist. So his wife says, just put him on trial. So mm -hmm. Lee Strobel takes a year sabbatical and studies what Josh McDowell wrote because Josh McDowell was a uh, Josh McDowell was a uh, uh, a, uh, a uh, not an atheist but agnostic law, law student. When he got saved because of the, he put it on trial too. So he set out to disprove Josh McDowell's material about the evidence that he put up about Jesus. A year later, Lee Strobel gets saved and starts writing all these books, Case for Christ, Case for Faith, Case for Creation. Case. He starts writing all these different things, and it's, it's pretty powerful. They've had a huge impact on my life. They're very deep in the analytical way of looking at things like a legal way, the legal historical methodology, and he just starts blah, 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 nailing it about the historicity of Christ and about the, so if you want to read a book about this, read the, the case for Christ, the least trouble book, because it, it does tons and tons and tons and tons of stuff. But it's also mentioned in there about the Abraham Lincoln thing, that there's more legal historical methodology or evidence about Jesus living on the planet than Abraham Lincoln lived on the planet. So we, it's not a leap of faith for me to believe that Abraham Lincoln lived on the planet. It's not a leap of faith for me to believe that a guy named, Alexander the Great lived in 330 BC. It's not a great leap of faith. This is like even 300 years before Christ. Right. So it's not, 
it's not a leap of faith for me to understand the, the, the different books that people wrote about Alexander the Great. And, and, and I, I have no problem with them. But we have all the evidence mounted up, all this circumstantial evidence that is just mounted up that we twist up and tie into a nice little bow and makes him guilty. Jesus is guilty of being a person who lived on the planet. And then we can get into the deity of Christ later. But that the fact that he was here historically is absolutely clear in all of the legal historical methodology. So I got a question for you. Back years ago, I, I referred to this at the beginning of the podcast. I had this faith crisis because someone presented this idea to me that Jesus wasn't historical. So I went and me being me, I was like, I want to know the best arguments that the other people have against Jesus being a historical figure. And what I discovered was that of all the, the references to Jesus in antiquity, most of them are contested by people. Have you ever heard anything like that? Or do you have any response to something like that? If somebody was to say, well, not all historians agree that these are equally reliable. Yeah. The contestations happened during the higher criticism periods of our of our time period. So it goes back to a guy named, um, what was the guy named who did evolution? Uh, Darwin. Darwin in the 18, mid-1800s, 1830, somewhere in there, he started surmising that the church is messed up. So because of the complacency and apathy of the church, he starts thinking, well, maybe this stuff's not real then. Because of the church not being on fire for God and because of that different thing, the Darwin started coming up with the theory of evolution, which is like the biggest, the most ludicrous thing being taught in schools to this day. I can disprove all of the 10 major icons of evolution that are being taught in public high school today. I can disprove every one of them scientifically. Forget faith. Scientifically, they're, they're all at error. Every one of them are a lie, and they're still being taught today. I, I don't know what's going on. Uh, we, we have an adversary out there who's kind of uh, anti-God, so I guess that's that's why it happens. But uh, all those people are fairly recent people from the 1800s on. But before that, it was – I mean, I know there wasn't – it was like the Age of Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. uh, the big problem with it happened when Copernicus said that the – that the earth is not the center of the solar system that the sun is. It's a heliocentric versus a geocentric solar system. And, and uh, he got branded as a heretic and kicked out of the church, excommunicated from the church. Huge mistake. He was absolutely right. The Bible doesn't say that it was, uh, 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 that we're not, that the sun, uh, the, the earth is the center of the solar system. It doesn't say that anywhere in there. It says that the sun moves around us, but that's what it looks like. It's like the great fish that Jonah called a whale. It looks like a, a whale, but it's probably, you know, I mean, it looks like a great fish, but it's a whale probably because he swallowed a guy and he was inside of it, breathing inside of it because the whale breathes air. So, um, um, I, you know, if someone asks me, do you believe the Bible literally? I say, no. And every time they get all befuddled and go, what do, what do you mean? I thought you I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were a preacher. I thought you believed the Bible literally. I said, oh, now, wait a minute. If I believed the Bible literally, I wouldn't have my right hand on. I wouldn't have my or, right eye. Or your eye. <laughs> I wouldn't have my right hand or my right eye. Jesus said, if, you, if your hand calls you, to, uh, 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 calls you to stumble, then cut it off and throw it away. If your right eye calls you to sin, then cut it, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to get to heaven without one of your body parts and for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus didn't literally mean that for everybody on, on the side of the hill there because everybody would have to have their right hand cut off. Mm. He meant, except for him, 
He meant it hyperbolically. So I believe the Bible hyperbolically when it's hyperbolic, figurative when it's figurative, literal where it's literal. There's a ton of literal stuff in there. Of course, I believe it literal when it's literal, but figurative when it's figurative. So that the, the problem is people aren't willing to work. That's why deconstructionism really kind of exploded in this millennial day because they're not willing to work. They just I, want to pick and choose. I couldn't agree more. I feel like everybody's looking for the most easily understood answer when the most easily understood answer is almost never correct yes. like it just it just sounds good and so yes. therefore people go with it but the yes. problem is just because something sounds good doesn't mean it's true yes. um yes. anyway so uh, one thing that i uncovered as far as like those highly contested uh extra biblical evidences or uh references to jesus in antiquity there are maybe some that are contested but you as you were saying maybe not as tr maybe the those who are contesting them are not as trustworthy as we would like to think right the other the other thing i realized and learned is that three of them are not hotly contested and there's no there's no question about whether or not they are uh whether or not they should be taken at face value and that are that's one from tacitus and then two from josephus and uh, they are very, they're very early in antiquity, meaning very close to Jesus's actual life, death and resurrection. And so there's, there's no doubt that those are actual references to Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who lived in Nazareth 2000 exactly. years ago. Josephus is the uh, game changer. Yeah. Because think about Josephus writing about Jesus uh, because he wrote during the days of Christ. So think about him writing about Jesus when he hated Jesus and was completely opposed to Jesus. He has nothing to gain when he writes about Jesus and a bunch to lose. But he was a historical writer who wanted to write history down factually. So mm -hmm. Josephus is believed by the Jews throughout time, you know, except for those things about Jesus there. So... Even the Jews knew, like the the story that was made up concerning his resurrection. Um, they they paid the guards to say the disciples came and took the body. Do you know what kind of guard guards a seal? Uh, 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 you have four and four guards. Four would be sleeping. Four would be awake. So you had eight guards there. There's still no way the disciples could have taken on these soldiers from Rome. No way. <laughs> A silly thought. Fishermen, overwhelmed guards, and uh, and they took the body. Okay, so yeah. seems unlikely. Yeah, very <laughs> unlikely. Well, Adrian, thank you so much. Um, if if people have questions about the a deeper conversation about the historicity of Jesus, I imagine you would point them towards evidence that demands a verdict, as well as uh, a case for Christ. Um, are there any other resources you would point them towards? Uh, Reasons to believe by R.C. Sproul is a very very good deep book that really had a big impact on my life matter of fact in the book that i wrote um uh, uh, uh i just went blank on the name christian, uh, christian man laws <laughs> I, I got a couple chapters in there from that but there's a chapter in christian man laws that's very interesting about a guy named dr donald coffee he was a top dna specialist in the world at the time in the late 80s and uh and uh he and and, and just destroyed evolution and said the only way we could have gotten here is by God making us. Mm. And he used science. So I asked him, are you a Christian? He said, no, nope, not a Christian. So him not being a Christian and ruining his reputation uh, 
proves in essence in, in in a court of law kind of thing it's circumstantial but it shows a lot of weight towards the veracity of what he says is being true so um dr donnikoff is in that book uh I, there's there's several other books i think anything from ken ham is good mm. uh anything from um uh i forgot the guy from charlotte who's a famous apologetics guy uh uh, uh geisler norman geisler anything from him is good uh these guys are all sharp and they write a lot of deep stuff that's uh that's for me it's entertainment so uh, awesome. i love reading this stuff well thank you so much adrian thank you for joining the podcast and uh tune in next week we have we'll have adrian again so you won't want to miss out on that and uh yeah thanks for being here man love you guys appreciate it all right hope you guys have a great rest of your day god bless